So this panel is about Lyle's importance to comparative literature and to ways of reading. And for that reason, we have very distinguished comparatists uh, to illuminate this. And I just want to bring a few points to attention. Um, how does comparative literature approach you, how do comparative literature approaches help us interpret the kinds of difficulties that we've been hearing about in the earlier panels? The generic mismatches, they're not, a mismatch is the wrong word, but the, the way that there's no easy way of comparing genres across one cultural language and one cultural language with another. So how do we, how do we approach these texts? Um, is there a potential, as I very much hope there is, of introducing such writings and such literature into areas of study here in the Anglosphere or in Europe, um, so that there is a possibility of such works becoming general reading matter in the same way that I, when I was a young student, you know, was reading Arthur Wayne's <coughs> translations of Chinese. Whatever we think about those, it, was, it made a generation of probably two generations, no Chinese literature in some way, Chinese poetry. Um, the, um, so the two books in focus um, are The uh, Principles of Sufism by Aisha al Baunia and The um, Epistle of Forgiveness by Allah al-Mari, who must forgive me my non-existent Arabic pronunciation. Um, and Kilito, who I've mentioned obviously before, um, in his The Arabs and the Art of Storytelling, which is just out in English, um, quotes Antoine Galland's introduction to his famous translation, The Thousand One Nights, when Galland praises the stories to the skies, saying that they show to what degree the Arabs have surpassed other nations in this kind of composition, and that in this genre we have not up till now seen anything so beautiful in any language. Kilito points out that this came as a surprise to the Arabs themselves, for whom poetry was the supreme art in which they excelled, and we've heard that today. But eventually, Kilito adds, having discovered the novel, the short story, and drama, they set about renewing their literature. Now, I wonder if a reciprocal movement can now start taking place <coughs> by which we start setting, we set about renewing our literature and our ways of reading and our literary studies and our creativity in response to discovering or rediscovering this Arabic corpus. So can we, as it were, cross-fertilize? And I want to ask, turn now to Matthew first, who's going to talk about the Epistle of Forgiveness. Right, so I'm, um, I work in um, English and comparative literature. I have no knowledge of Arabic at all. Um, and actually, shamefully, hardly any acquaintance with Arabic literature, even in translation, up until um, about the day before yesterday. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm speaking, I suppose, as the first outsider to the project and also as one of the constituencies that you're hoping to reach, which is to say kind of constituencies of, of kind of ignoramuses, um, ignoramuses like me. Um, I've been asked to comment on uh, the Epistle of Forgiveness, especially the kind of famous um, first book of it. Um, in the translation by Keith Van Gelder and Gregor um, Schirler. And the good news is, first of all, I kind of loved it. I was completely gripped and, and involved by, um, by this text um, for various reasons. The first of them being that it has, it's, a, it's a very eclectic text, so it uh, has varieties of prose. Um, there is rhyming prose. Obviously, my, my sense of it is only coming through the translation, and I'll come back to that question, how one handles that only kind of very partial, well, that, that, that partial... Um, grasp, I suppose, um, in, a, in, in a few minutes. Um, the translation reproduces some of the rhyming prose, but I understand from the clear 
introduction, not all of it, but nevertheless, this was a kind of um, aesthetic, uh, kind of very, it was something new for me aesthetically, um, and it was uh, refreshing. It was kind of like an extremely energized, uh, a bit like doggerel, but at the same time kind of absorbing, uh, had a con kind of continuous flow. Um, and there's also poetry, so, so this, is, this is mingled with poetry, poetry that's been quoted, and also commentary on the poetry. So I enjoyed the kind of eclecticism of the text. And the other thing I really enjoyed is the kind of character of the, uh, the, the, the central character. Um, so the scenario, as I imagine almost everybody knows, is that um, the, the author, Abdullah Allah, has received an extremely a letter that seems to irritate him a great deal um, from another uh, lesser writer and scholar, Ibn al-Qadi. Um, and this text is a letter that responds to that irritating letter. Um, and in the first part of this great, enormous response, um, he imagines Ibn al-Qadi, who he refers to, or at least the translation refers to, maybe as the sheikh, um, uh, transported to paradise um, and having some trouble getting in um, and meeting lots of poets there and engaging in um, having some experiences, but also spending quite a lot of the time engaging in really involved um, discussions about poetry, about questions of transmission, um, about errors um, and, in transmission and, and, and so on. Actually, he reminds me um, a little bit of um, one of my children, a 10-year-old child, um, who's, <laughs> who's full of pride in his large vocabulary and keeps on explaining what the complicated words mean, uh, so this character does the same. Um, and <laughs> is also very fierce, <laughs> also very fierce about grammatical errors. Um, and this character, too, you know, will encounter a poet and say, when you wrote that, did you really mean that? Are you sure it should be in the accusative and not in the nominative and so on? So you get these conversations which are, you know, in a sense, you would expect them to be dry, um, but in fact, they have tremendous energy behind them. Um, it's satirical, but it's also very warm, the presentation of this character, which is to say, this is a guy who clearly loves poetry. He loves poetry to the extent that he's just almost unbearably boring about it. Um, but the being boring about it is also kind of, um, you know, admirable and also kind of enjoyable. Um, I'm just going to read you a teensy bit, which Marina asked me to do to give everyone a, a, a flavour of the, of the text, which is when he's trying to get himself past the, the, the gate of um, paradise by reciting <coughs> poetry to the porter... Uh, actually, I'm going to try this next time someone tries to keep me out of Oxford College. Um, but, <laughs> but by reciting poetry, it's the angel um, who's on the, on, the, on the door. And wh when I pick it up, he's already done a fair amount of this, um, and it's failed. So he, he tries again. He, I compose some lines on the pattern of, and he quotes a bit of, a bit of verse. Um, again, I mention the Ridwan, who's the porter angel in this, in, this, in this poetry. I approached him, and I did as before, but he did not appear to hear. It was as if I tried to move Mount Tabir or attempted to extract scent from cement. Cement being a mixture of limestone and clay. <laughs> <laughs> then I continued with all other metrical patterns that co could accommodate Ridwan until I had exhausted them. But still he did not help me, and I didn't think he even understood what I said. When I tried everything without success, I cried out as loud as I could, Ridwan, who I trusted by the omnipotent almighty, charged with guarding paradise, can't you hear me calling on you for help? He replied, I heard you mention Ridwan, but I had no idea that you meant me. What do you want, poor wretch? I said, I'm a man who cannot endure to be dehydrated, that is thirsty. <laughs> it is for the reckoning that I've waited and waited. I've got my document of repentance which cancels all my sins. I've composed numerous poems in praise of you, mentioning you by name. Ridwan asked, poems? What's that? This is the first time I've heard that word. I replied, poems is the plural of poem. 
is speech that is metrical and on certain conditions sounds pleasant. <laughs> if the meter is defective, either by an excess or a shortfall, one notices it. People in the temporal world used to ingratiate themselves with kings and lords by means of poems, so I composed some for you, hoping that you might let me enter paradise by this gate. I think people have waited long enough now. I'm only a weak, feeble person. Surely I am someone who may hope for forgiveness, and rightly so, if God the exalted wills. But Ridwan said, Do you expect me to allow you to enter without permission from the Lord of Glory, you dimwit? Forget it. <laughs> um, um, anyway, so it's a brilliant, you know, obviously it's a brilliant and enjoyable text. Um, just thinking about how somebody, what somebody like me can do with this thing in, in terms of comparative in terms of comparative literature. Well, I mean, there are lots of um, things uh, that struck me strange um, in the text. Um, the imagining women is, is extraordinary, radically objectifying, kind of cartoonish, full of desire, kind of shocking, but at the same time, you know, energised in ways that are quite strange to me um, as somebody, as a reader who only knows um, the Euro European tradition. Um, the imagining of animals is brilliant too, so there are animals in this paradise. Um, at one moment, the shape wants to set off and enjoy himself doing some hunting, and he gets his bow and arrow, and he shoots the arrow at um, an antelope or something, I can't remember what it is, and the arrow stops like that just, just before it, it hits the animal. The animal says, you can't hunt me, I'm in paradise too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then there are reasons why the animals have got into paradise. So that's, very you know, that's kind of interesting and, and strange. But what I was most interested in is the kind of handling of, of textuality and this interest in commenting what's just been said, um, the interest in textual transmission and error, this kind of picking up on poets and what they've kind of been meaning the whole time, the way in which it's a text that's got its own uh, commentary included within it. And here I wanted just to mention Dante by way of comparison. So this is a text that for a while was thought possibly to have influenced Dante, and I gather you know, people don't know the whole thing that would have been the case anymore. Um, but in Dante's other life, after, after life, um, there are also poets. Um, but the way the poets are imagined, that you know, so obviously there's Virgil, who's Dante's, Dante's guide, and there are other poets they encounter, like, for instance, at the beginning of Hell, there's a kind of array of uh, Homer and Ovid and a kind of great canonical figures who Dante's very proud to be allowed to join. So in Dante's imagining of how poetry would figure in the afterlife, you have this conjuring of an idea of utterance, of a body of work out of the text that Dante has read, and a turning of that sort of work, I suppose, into a figure who can speak with authority in the afterlife. And there's nothing really about a misunderstanding and error and textual transmission and the works having varied as they've been recited in different ways. Whereas in this text, that's where the interest is. Um, so that what you get is, a, you know, obviously the poets are figures in the afterlife as well, but their relationship to their writing is quite, is quite different. Um, and there's a lot of anxiety about writing and reiteration and recitation, about error, about the nature of error, a sort of <coughs> precision worry about it, but also a reveling in it. Um, and it seems to me that that, you know, if I were to sort of set about constructing a, 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 comp a comparison on the basis of this text, it's that kind of, um, that kind of thing that I, that I want to probe. I don't know if I've got one more minute. Have I? Anyway, but um, just part, part of the reason, and this is coming back to how one can read the text, so part of the reason why this is interesting to me um, is that this way with, with language, this interest in the medium of language as a medium of transformation and error, and that errors can be productive, um, feels quite modern to me. Um, so there are various writers writing you know, today who exploit these possibilities of language too. 
and obviously with the internet it, it makes textual reiteration and variation kind of visible and work in ways that it didn't before. But obviously this is a very ancient text, so on the one hand the text is appealing to me and I'm finding something in it that feels as though it speaks to me, but on the other hand because I don't have the right scholarly knowledge I'm a bit uneasy about this sort of feeling of recognition that I have. I don't want to say, well, of course, it's a thousand years old from a different culture, therefore it must be wholly other. But at the same time, that balance between being nourished <coughs> imaginatively by it and, on the other hand, uh, wanting that resistance that scholarly knowledge gives to that kind of imaginative adoption is really important. So it seems to me, one, the, the scholarly use that, should, that can, one kind of scholarly use that can be made of these texts in a comparative context is as a kind of medium for discussion, which is to say that now I've got something that allows me to go to Wenchin or go to, go to you know, the other experts in the room and kind of ask questions. Um, and I feel that my, my imaginative involvement with the text has a kind of value, but it needs to be rebutted as well. So that's one, one kind of use um, I, imagine, I, I imagine the text having. The, the other thing I just wanted to say um, is there's a little bit of, you know, it's, it's admirable that wanting to reach out for a wide audience um, and I think, you know, obviously there are economic constraints and so on, but I think you should feel uh, kind of able to issue the books in you know, smaller paperback formats, issue them electronically, maybe do a slightly... I mean, this, this is kind of attractive in a way, this volume, but it, it kind of shouts scholarship when you look at it, doesn't it? So I, don't, I, don't, I, I want to say there are, there are many different kinds of reading, and obviously the sort of uh, scholarly um, expertise that's embodied in these books is hugely important. Um, but I feel that the project shouldn't be afraid of opening itself to the general reader and to just being skimmed and to all these other kinds of reading that are, are what goes on in culture, um, as, this, um, as this text, the Epistle of Forgiveness, shows so energetically, which is to say the texts are taken in lots of ways by lots of different people, and that's, that's fine, that's energising. Thank you. So, uh, I'd underline most of the things that um, Matthew said. My, my name is Ros Ballister. Um, I'm Professor of 18th Century Studies in English Literature. Um, insofar as I'm a comparativist, uh, my linguistic skills are between French and English. I wrote a book about the Oriental, well, about Antoine Garland's Arabian Nights and how it um, transmits and circulates and is imitated in the English 18th century. Um, I'm being asked to talk a bit about my experience of reading. Um, Aisha Al-Baunia's The Principles of Sufism, uh, edited and translated by Thomas Emil uh, Homerin. Um, so I, 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 I was um, relieved, liberated by Joe's <coughs> comment early on about saying that we need to think about religious texts as problem-solving and creative rather than factual sources, because that's how <coughs> I felt reading this text. I'll, I'll describe it to you a bit uh, and then talk a little bit about where it made me go in terms of my thinking. So Aisha... Aisha is a late 15th century poet and Muslim scholar, the most prolific woman poet in Arabic, I'm told, before the 20th century. The Principles of Sufism is a mystical guidebook drawing lessons and readings from the Sufi tradition for her reader. Sufism is a tree with lots of branches, but there are four essential roots, repentance, sincerity, recollection, and love. Each of these principles is addressed in her book in a separate section. It's a sort of, um, after the wildness of reading The Epistle of Forgiveness, it's a sort of beautifully regulated experience. Uh, each section quotes a number of prophetic traditions and demonstrates her learning. Uh, she cites early Muslim forebears, then later Sufi masters, and concludes with her own observations and poetic verses. So her own voice, as you read, is grounded, founded, indeed it's rooted in the words of others. So it's a, it's, it read to me 
as a performative linguistic act in which the work itself enacts or performs each stage it describes. Uh, comparative reading, of course, is always a kind of reaching to what seems familiar as a way of understanding the strange, only often for the strange to seem even more strange. Um, actually, the Epistle of Forgiveness made me think slightly of, of Swift's Gulliver's Travels, and I was thinking, you know, Gulliver has this experience as well of going to other worlds and finding himself only ever wandering around saying, it's not like my world. <laughs> and I think that's how we often feel when, we're, when we encounter these kinds of texts. So um, I thought immediately, as a tradition of mysticism in the prophetic writings and speech of Christian women from the medieval mystics in Europe, Marjorie Kemp, Julian of Norwich, come to mind through to the millenarian prophetesses of the 17th century, Anna Trapnell, Eleanor Channel. These are writers that, that I know and, and, and read from the 17th and 18th century. For me, it had a wonderful kind of resonance with Anna Chapnell's Cry of the Stone, which is a 17, uh, 1654 uh, prophetic text launching into Oliver Cromwell, actually, in the Civil Wars. Um, Chapnell's work is her speech transcribed by an amanuensis, so very different in that this is a learned uh, uh, writerly text. Chapnell's only textual reference is the Bible. Um, but it does share, her work shares with Aisha this kind of intense focus on speaking to an audience to witness an identity which has been set alight through encounter with the divine, and to try and ignite that audience as well. That, that attitude, I think, to reception is, 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 uh, seemed to me to echo. Um, I'll read you, to, um, well, I'll see if I can get to two pieces. I'll read the first one. Um, I, I thought I'd start just by reading to you when Aisha introduces herself, uh, right at the start. She says, praise God who pours his aid upon his beloved ones as a special allotment and reward quenching their hearts from the drink of oneness with love and purity, revealing himself to their inner hearts in glory and beauty, and gracing them with gifts of proximity in contemplation and union. I praise him with the praise of one to whom he made himself known. Then she knew and was blessed with his grace, and confessed and acknowledged that this was beyond all thanks. Um, I was very struck, this may be a translation issue, but that, that third personing of the self is something that a lot of women prophets that I've read do too, that then she knew rather than then I knew. Um, I bear witness that there is no deity but God alone without peer. This is the witness of one who roamed in the deserts of singularity and drowned in the ocean of oneness. Then she turned her gaze from creation and witnessed the true reality by means of the true reality. So this turning of the self away from self, from the material world, to subject oneself to a God for a higher oneness and a new differentiation from the everyday, uh, and turning away as well from those who lack this revelation, the ocean of oneness, that's the pattern, I think, of the mystic, and one that often, of course, especially powerful and enabling for women. It legitimates their refusal of the domestic and the everyday, their turn to inwardness, which is really, they say, an opening up of the self to a more powerful and demanding authority than any other can have on them. So if they're your husband, you can think, it's God that calls me. Um, mystics often figure that turn to the inner, I think, in very powerfully material terms, and especially as a form of feeding or drinking. And oddly enough, as I was reading this, I was, it made me think of um, Lewis Carroll's Alice, responding to those imperatives to eat and drink in an attempt to satisfy her curiosity about a world in which some new kind of understanding is evidently there in front of her, and she's seeking for it. And I, it made me think about whether Carus, Carol was actually more informed by that mystic tradition than I had thought about myself. Um, Aisha offers powerful and attracting material metaphors of the principles she's invoking. And again, 
Um, Arabic scholars can tell me whether these are just so familiar that I shouldn't even be entranced by them. <laughs> but I loved repentance is a fire in the heart that flares up and a rift that never mends. Sincerity is red sulphur. If an ounce of it were thrown on a ton of copper deeds, it would turn them into pure gold fit for a king. I was off with Rumpelstiltskin there. Uh, remembrance is like selecting the sweetest dates to eat. She does, of course, offer a very significant difference from the women prophets of the Western Christian tradition. There's no further mention of her femaleness that I could find later in the text, so it's just in that opening moment when one's aware of it, um, beyond this third par paragraph. There's no more biographical information, no self-reference. In this respect, it reads more like what I would recognise as a conduct book or an instructional work than a spiritual biography or a mystic experience. Um, her experience is exemplary, it's not specific. Her gender is not, it appears, material to the story of her union with her God. Nor does she show any particular sense, and I like this, that the male mystics that she cites, or the, the authorities that she cites, have any more authority than she does. She evidences none of that kind of uncomfortable struggle that I see in Christian women's mystic writing with male priests and authority figures. She just takes them and, and goes with them. Um, as with all mystic writing, it's this kind of ecstatic rendering of divine love, which is the destination of the writing at its most compelling moment. Um, I don't think I'll read another section now, because I know I want to make sure we have some time for questions, so I'll, yeah. I'll leave that for a moment. And I'll just, uh, I'll just say that one of the things that struck me, just to sort of lead to some thoughts here, um, I found myself sort of searching for, the, when I was trying to find things to read out, I found myself searching for a quotation of the text which gave me Aisha's voice or her poetry and then I thought again um, it's one of the reasons I thought I won't actually read this out because it seems to me that much of this text is precisely about a refusal of self and the word and, and insisting on the word as a kind of witness of other words it's a textual palimpsest all of which is designed to find God not the author so we're meant to be looking for God not the author in reading this text God is destination and origins must be effaced even if the sources of words are properly acknowledged. And I thought here of that very complex moment in John Bunyan's allegory of P Pilgrim's Progress, where we see, in 1678, we, the author sees Christian after his visitation from evangelist, fleeing his home and family in a desperate pursuit of the real life which God is going to give him. Uh, and Bunyan says, Now he hadn't run far from his own door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, Life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. That sort of imperative um, beyond. A few concerns or questions. Some of them have been already addressed. This problem about um, poetry access through translation and without Arabic makes it very difficult to recognise formal traditions and conventions, especially to see patterns of language that might be visual or sonic. Uh, poetry, so Aisha's poetry reads to me startlingly like free verse expression, where all the, in, but all the indications from reading and also, uh, as others have said, is that these are actually highly formalised and patterned through rhyme, but it's, uh, I absolutely understand that decision um, not to, to, to always translate to rhyme, except for the comic, because it feels comic to us. But it, it's a difficult issue of access, I think. Um, that's just another point. Um, oh, yes. Uh, and, and finally, I suppose, coming back to this issue of kind of memory, repetition, or original performance. Um, this, there's much to celebrate, I found, in reading a woman's kind of unproblematic demonstration of her learning. 
which is not something that we encounter often, I encounter often um, in the European texts I read. But this is also a tradition that's in many ways very different and quite unassimilable, even in the most postmodern of moments, where I think we are still very preoccupied with originality and invention. So I was thinking about the figure I know best, Scheherazade, and when Western critics talk about Scheherazade, we often sort of silence that point which says she's a great recaller of stories and turn her into an inventor of stories. We want her to be someone who made up stories rather than rehearsed other stories in order to manage them for her audience. Because for us, for, or for, or for us in that Western tradition, that feels like not creativity. So it's reconsidering creativity, I suppose, through the encounter with these texts, which is um, an important in illumination. Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Dominique Julian. I'm a professor of comparative literature at uh, UCSB, University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, hope you can hear me back there. Let me know if not. Um, <coughs> I, um, I've done some work on the uh, reception and rewriting of the Arabian Nights um, from uh, the point of view of a comparatist, not an Arabist. And I think that's probably my excuse for, for being here. Um, some of the things that I intend to say about this uh, will, um, I think, intersect with many of the things that have been said already. But I also thought that I would um, focus on um, a, a rather particular point of view, which is the point of view of teachability and, and, and the student's um, reaction uh, to this. If we can think of teaching some of these texts um, in a world literature class. Right? And, <coughs> and I thought I would um, preface uh, my comments by uh, quoting another great classic of Western civilization, uh, which is Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, when she says, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, So I think that captures some of the uh, the feeling uh, when, we, uh, when we encounter this. So first of all, of course, um, I, I want to praise the, uh, the project of, uh, of, of the Lao Library. It's, it's a beautiful edition. Visually, it's, I think, very stunning. Um, in terms of its elegance, I actually like very much the fact that the two texts are facing away from each other. And um, to me, as, as somebody who's all into Borges, as I will elaborate in a moment, um, it's very Borgesian. Anything having to do with mirrors um, is... Um, very satisfying, and so that, that's one thing I like about it. Of course, uh, the fact that these texts are um, not only bilingual, but that they're painstakingly exact, um, they're complete, um, <coughs> almost <coughs> unforgivingly so, um, and it was done by the, the greatest specialists, that makes them uh, an invaluable tool, of course, for, uh, for, for specialists. Um, and, uh, and one can only hope that it will expand more and more to ex include so many more bilingual volumes, um, uh, both ancient and perhaps um, uh, more modern. And that's, of course, a very important thing to keep in mind since it is so little known to, uh, to people beyond the rather small group of specialists. So here we talk about the secondary goal of Lao, which is um, the ambition to reach out to the general public, um, which is this elusive audience. Um, and um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll focus only on one of the two books, uh, the Almari, 
um, seen from the point of view of not just a California student, this is literature from Mars. Right. Um, it, it, it is absolutely and radically alien. Um, so one possible point of entry, I think, um, and uh, a way to um, begin to, 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 to relate to some sense of, of meaning um, is through the intermediary of, of various paratextual reading guides. Right now, elaborate a little bit. Um, on this. So, for example, we can talk about Al-Mari as being <coughs> the Arab Dante, right? Um, much of it is inaccurate um, and it doesn't quite work. Um, we could say uh, Al-Baudia is the Arab Saint Teresa of Avila, for example, here again. You know, um, there is much here that can be quibbled and, and, and discussed and so on, but I would propose um, that despite the inaccuracies, we actually take this sort of thing seriously. Right? That we actually try to, 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 to work this is because even though we cannot talk about direct influence, um, it seems to me that it's the, an indispensable way in, into these texts. Right? It's indispensable um, if the non-specialist Western reader is to connect in any um, deep way. With, uh, with these books. Right. Um, so uh, I want to mention uh, an essay by Borges, which is very famous and um, probably very, very familiar to many people here, which is the essay Kafka and his precursors. Right? And that, that's where I'm coming from. I, I want to talk about the Borgesian notion of precursor, which is um, not in the least about a matter of influence, right? It's not about influence. It's in fact a description of the act of reading. What is it that we do when we, when we read? And so he says what we do is that we tend to project uh, the, the more modern or the more familiar text back onto the older or the less familiar text um, and in, in this essay, he uh, mentions, for example, a 9th century Chinese text by uh, Wan Hanyu on unicorns, and he says that is a precursor of Kafka, right? not in any uh, influential sense, but in the sense that <coughs> we, uh, knowing <coughs> Kafka and coming from Kafka, read Kafka back into that, um, that Chinese text. Right, so that um, you know, triangulate uh, Dante and Almari uh, uh, to inject some relatability into the uh, into the foreign, into the impenetrable text. Right? It really helps. It really works. Um, I think many similarities. Of course, uh, the travel through the underworld, the conversations with with residents. Um, many of them, of course, are learned men from ages past. That's all in Dante. Um, <coughs> there's the, uh, the issue of the fate of the pre-Islamic sages, which has a, a strong counterpart in, uh, in Dante, Dante's unorthodox treatment, for example, of the worthy pagans in the Inferno. Um, another, I think, similarity would be the irreverent treatment uh, of important sinners, the kings, the popes, etc., the punished by Dante, who shares with Almarius a special disgust for hypocrisy. So um, all these things, I think, are uh, um, analogies and similarities that deserve to be pointed out, played up um, 
in a, in a pedagogical context. Many differences too, and as Matthew said, the more we see similarities, the more we see differences. So I think the itinerary is, is very different. In Dante, we progress from hell to purgatory to paradise, and here it's not like that. Um, we start in paradise, and we go to hell, and then back to paradise. <coughs> Another um, important difference is the ironic tone, um, and this is what the paratext tells us, um, and I would say, um, uh, again, uh, for a student, uh, it's the paratext that's going to, to tell him or her that, not so much the text by itself. Um, this obsessive focus on uh, technique of poetry and grammar, that's very non-Dante. Um, in, in fact, in Dante, we have all this, this rich, lifelike um, uh, world uh, of, of the underworld, and that, that's different here. Um, it, to me, the most important difference would be that we don't have in Almari the, um, the sense of a personal pilgrimage towards a salvation. It's not really about that. No, that's an important difference. So when, um, when we talk in terms of Borgesian precursor, Kafka and his precursors, I just want to draw um, <coughs> some examples from, from Almari's book, um, which I think can work in that way. Um, he runs into all these poem, poets and keeps quoting their poetry to them. You said this, you wrote that, and they say, me? No. Um, where did I say that? Um, so here it, it brings to mind uh, a very modern example, which is uh, Coetzee's wonderful novel, Elizabeth Costello, with a very similar situation. And it's kind of complete disconnect um, uh, between the, the former life and, and the, uh, the afterlife. Um, that's one example. Um, <coughs> image, now in the second volume, there's this completely bizarre image where he says, who would want to make a cloak out of camel slob? Indeed. Um, so uh, that is, to, to me, the closest it comes is to certain um, images by Raymond Roussel, for example. And, um, and they are obtained by means of an extraordinarily bizarre, idiosyncratic set of formal constraints. All right, so, so we, we could work with this. Um, one, um, one other example, um, which I like very mu much, um, he uh, plucks a fruit and finds a girl in it. That can happen. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and he, she's nice, but she's too skinny. And so the moment he has formulated the thought, her behind becomes absolutely gigantic. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then he has to wish her back to a more manageable size uh, uh, again. Um, Alice in Wonderland, right? Eat me, drink me, that, that kind of thing. Um, uh, so anyway, I don't want to go on, but, but these are um, some ways in which we can probably pair up um, two texts to make them, uh, again, teachable. Um, so how, how to engage a student audience from a world literature, how to make it appealing, um, and why is it difficult with the, with the present edition, I think, um, the greatest difficulty would be this, this fixation on grammar points, uh, practically on, on every page. And that um, distracts from the, the narrative greatly. Um, and then there's all this information that's unusable for a, for a non-Arabist, uh, for a non-specialist. Um, and an, an interesting reaction, I showed this to one such person. And he said, well, this is a grammar book, isn't it? <laughs> 
And, and so it, it brought up the interesting possibility that the parts that would actually be uh, disposable would be n not the grammar discussions, but the anecdotes, um, everything that goes on. And uh, to, to that person, it was meant as a, a textbook, grammar textbook. Um, okay. Um, solutions, and uh, I, I think I, I must wrap up. Right. So solutions to this uh, to audience problem. Um, if we're talking about specialists, of course, the, uh, the LAL policy of literal exhaustive translation is non-negotiable, and that's as it should be, and it's admirable. But of course, it excludes the possibility that the other audience can, uh, can, can really participate um, in, uh, in this. And I think this was mentioned in uh, Gregor Scholler's interview, and also in the, in the uh, introduction, that the first intention was to cut out um, or greatly reduce, at least, um, all these uh, difficult grammar passages, and then they decided against it, right? Um, and it has been done, I understand, in, in other previous translations, that has been the policy, that has been the choice, to, um, <coughs> to distill, distort, and excise, right? To, to make it uh, user-friendly, really. Um, so, I, I think it would um, be great if at some point there could be something like a companion volume, which would be an online um, volume, which um, could do several things. So first of all, give um, a, a lot more background on the, the author. Right? This author is likable. This author is, is, is appealing. This biography for modern readers and students in particular is extremely um, relatable. Blind, he was a heretic, you know, he was a hedonist, a vegan, he had this unusual compassion for animals, he was tolerant, open-minded, um, he was a humanist, uh, all that um, should be, you know, greatly expanded in a, in a, in a companion volume, in a, in a biographical um, introduction. The table of contents, I think, uh, could be made um, easier to, to to use and, and to read the <coughs> contents in it. Um, one example, instead of the conversations with X, the conversations with Y, which you know doesn't say much to somebody who knows nothing, um, maybe give a sense of what goes on there. What do they talk about? Um, give the main points. And uh, essentially, it would be a question of, of helping people, both students, of course, and instructors, um, to, uh, to, to, to extract um, the really more readable parts that uh, students might be, um, might be drawn to and uh, expand on the parallels that do this kind of Borgesian precursor um, trajectory. Expand and that make that um, more, more evident uh, to readers. Um, Including perhaps you know having side by side texts. Um, why not? Um, and, and I'm thinking of a of a possible course which would be on, on this um, uh, eschatological tourism um, that's mentioned in the introduction. So in, in addition to the usual suspects, you know the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Commedia, we would have. Um, excerpts by Al-Mari, we would have some Lucian, we would have some Quran, etc. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs>
self-serving, but you know, uh, sorry, we have to cut it off. I want to be very brief because I, I think you know, as timekeeper, I have to keep time, <laughs> and the challenge is how to how to keep my own time. So I'm going to be very brief. I'm Wen Chin Ouyang, I'm Professor of Arabic and Comparative Literature at SOAS, University of London. And I'm trying to think outside of Arabic and inside of Arabic at the same time. So very <coughs> briefly, I'm going to throw out two ideas for discussion. One is the idea of epistolarity, right? And how that idea actually informs how we should be reading and interpreting text in order to understand it, right? And Risalat al-Ghufran by Ma'arvi begins with Risalat ibn al-Qarih. We have two episodes, right? One built into each other, and then we have episodes everywhere, Risala everywhere in Arabic literature. And I think as an Arabist, Risala as a mode of writing as an idea, as a genre, has been understudied, right? And I'm going to bring into sort of this discussion an idea I picked up from reading English literature, the idea from Gerald MacLean, I believe, but I can't remember the book, so come to me for that later, right? Is that when you write a risala, and this happens at court as well, you have an addressee and you have a writer but you, when you send the book out, send the letter out, you always have to anticipate that the postman <laughs> will probably secretly open your letter and read it. So you're not only addressing your patron, but you're addressing a third reader who may be peeking into your writing <laughs> and trying to figure out what your secrets are. All right. Now I'm going to very briefly, right, and, and I think that's sort of like what I'm trying to say that is that within Arabic literature, within the genres that we have to come to grips with, right, there is already theorizing about reading and modes of writing already, and that is a very productive site of thinking more about how to read classical Arabic literature, especially texts that belong to 1400 years ago. But I want to use that to move on very quickly to the modern and to think about how we can use that to anticipate what a modern <coughs> reader would expect as well and whether something like Risat al-Ghufran can deliver that. Now I'm just going to read two excerpts, one from Roland Barthes on the pleasure of the text and one excerpt from Risalat al-Ghufran. Right, I'm going to read Barthes. And I hope this is a very short passage. The pleasure of the text is not necessarily of a triumphant, heroic, muscular type. No need to throw out one's chest. My pleasure can very well take the form of a drift. Drifting occurs whenever I do not respect the whole. And whenever, by dint of seeming driven about languages, illusions, seductions, and intimidations, like a cork on the waves, I remain motionless, pivoting on the intractable bliss that binds me to the decks, to the world. Drifting occurs whenever social language, a sociolect socio socio fails me, as we say, my courage fails me. Thus, another name for drifting would be the intractable or perhaps even stupidity. However, if one were to manage it, the very utterance of drifting today would be a su suicidal discourse. 
but I'm going to read a text from Arabic that is like that, but it's completely opposite of that, right? So I'm going to read a passage about wine. <laughs> Being drunk is forbidden in every religion. And he can stop there, right? We know that. But he goes on. It is said that the Indians never make a man king if he drinks alcohol because they consider it abominable. It is possible, they say, that some news arrives in the kingdom while the king is intoxicated and then the king, who should be obeyed, is sleeping off <coughs> his hangover. Curse be the wine. How many a company because of it went into decline. There is no good at all in alcohol. It makes one tread as if on burning coal. He who drinks wine in the morning is walking on the road to catastrophe. He who drinks mother night in the evening is trailing his skirt in vanity. Whoever is infatuated with mother iris has given in to his ruined mind. To carry a cheering wine in one's hand is quickly to let good conduct slip. Enjoyment of the company of a vintage wine strips off the robe of dignity. He who is addicted to a pungent wine will not stand on the clear road. To be besotted with heavy wine is to revert to the state of a newly weaned child, habitually drinking. Anan, wine, prevents one from attaining one's, desi one's desires. Failure because of wine bought to be drunk extracts every hidden secret. There is no profit in bay red wine that makes the living as good as dead. I'm going to stop here. And then we, we can think about this, right? You can, you can easily say wine is bad, intoxication is bad, it makes you lose <coughs> your kingdom, but he doesn't do so. And for someone who says wine is forbidden, this person knows an awful lot about wine, doesn't he? <laughs> right. So I think here is where <coughs> I think, right, whether we're readers of Arabic literature or readers of Chinese literature or readers of English literature, there is pleasure of the text and that pleasure derives very crucially from the aesthetics of the text and from drifting, right? from not sticking to the point. And that's where I want to stop. Thank you very much. Paolo, you have your hand up. Yes. Um, first of all, thank you so much to uh, invite us and uh, us non-Arabists and non-specialists to be part of the conversation. Um, and this panel, I think, uh, uh, speaking to how we uh, bridge the, the world lit and the uh, specialist perspective. I, I guess I, I had a question for the board, which had to do with the, um, the use of introductions and forwards. Um, I personally really enjoy the, the forwards that we have, like Tim's forward to the two travel books. Uh, I, I was reading in PDF form, uh, uh, Marina, your forward to the Concert for Caleb's, which really got me into the book, a book that I knew nothing about. Um, but I, some of the books don't have forwards. Um, as I, I just wonder if <coughs> as you're envisioning, say, English-only paperbacks, different readerships, not merely an academic readership. Forwards seem to be something that could be helpful. I also noticed that some of the introductions are more comparative-friendly than others. Right? I think Rebecca Johnson's introduction to Leg Over Leg is very sort of Tristan Shandy, comparative and very welcoming of the, of the comparative reader. I'm not sure that that, that that has to be better or 
necessarily, I can't imagine every Ford needs to be that way, or that we have to say this is not Dante, or if we start comparing too much, then we're introducing this as, this is not, um, this is not the Shakespeare, this is not the Dante. So that, that may seem a very Eurocentric way of presenting things. But some kind of forward, which at least within the Arabic tradition, in a, in a more lively, general reader kind of way, I, just, I am wondering if okay. the series is going to okay. include more of these, less, okay. less shape. Huh? I think we understand, all right? Does yeah. anybody <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I think, I think um, that I'm going to take that as a comment to hang yeah. in the air, to be discussed <laughs> when you meet the board, because we're running late. Okay. So we'll bring up the next panel. And if we gain some time, we can bring that up again. Okay. Could you all please? Is that okay? Could you all please thank the? the <laughs>